0: On behalf of Chest, I would like to welcome you to the February 2020 podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the co editor of the Chest podcast section. I thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really exciting conversation on lung cancer screening. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Nishi and Ikarino as our guests, and I'll allow them each to introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Nishi?
1: Sure. Yes, thank you for inviting me to discuss our research. It's certainly a topic that I'm passionate about, and I'm very honored to be invited for this podcast. Currently, I'm at the University of Texas in Galveston. I serve as an associate professor, where I work as an intensivist and interventional pulmonologist and program director for the fellowship program. And then I also dabble a little bit in this outcomes research world related to interventional pulmonary COPD and lung cancer.
0: An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Dr. Nishi. Um, Dr. Icarino, um, could you introduce yourself?
2: Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me to talk about this uh, interesting topic. Um, I'm an assistant professor at Boston University uh, where I have a clinical interest in uh, pulmonary rehabilitation um, and general pulmonary medicine. Um, My research interest is in lung cancer screening and pulmonary nodule evaluation as well as uh, clinical guidelines and their implementation. Um, And I really look forward to to this talk today.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to discuss uh, your two papers, which will be published in Chester, the February 2020 edition. Um, We'll be discussing Dr. Nishi's paper, which is entitled Use of Imaging and Diagnostic Procedures After Low-Dose Computed Tomography Screening for Lung Cancer. And we'll be also discussing Dr. Icarina's accompanying editorial, which was entitled Diagnostic Evaluation After Lung Cancer Screening in Real-World Practice, More Questions Than Answers. So why don't we go ahead and get started? I'm going to start with uh, Jonathan. Maybe you could um, set the stage for our audience and say why lung cancer screening is so important.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it really roots back to the fact um, about lung cancer itself. Um, Lung cancer screening remains the leading cause of cancer-related mortality in the United States. Um, It's been the leader for some time. Um, Unfortunately, we actually have not seen much improvement in that number um, for a number of decades, um, really. And uh, the National Lung Screening Trial in 2011 found this exciting um, intervention, uh, yearly CT, low-dose CT screening, um, that could potentially reduce uh, lung cancer-related mortality. And so that's the, the real kind of excitement, I think, around uh, lung cancer screening. Um, that study found a 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality um, with yearly low-dose uh, CT screening of the uh, correct high-risk population. Um, And then a subsequent uh, Nelson trial actually found an even better um, benefit. And so these are numbers that we don't see um, for many medical interventions. And for lung cancer, really the only thing better is probably quitting smoking. Um, And so second to that, um, this has really been the the biggest intervention we've seen in terms of potentially reducing um, mortality related to lung cancer.
0: Great. And then in terms of the mechanism of benefit, how would lung cancer screening reduce mortality? Um, maybe you could describe that for our
2: audience? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the main premise with lung cancer screening is that we can catch lung cancer early at its early stages where it's potentially curable. Um, so if we can catch lung cancer when it's a stage one um, or even an early stage two and potentially do a lung resection, um, we can potentially quote-unquote, cure lung cancer before it gets to a point uh, where we're only talking about palliative um, therapies or therapies that can only sort of uh, perhaps lengthen life or reduce symptoms but not cure the disease. There's a big drop-off that we see in survival as we advance stage in lung cancer from stages one, two, three, um, and four. And so, if we can catch stage uh, one cancer at its earliest moments, when it is resectable, um, that's how we can potentially save lives um, by um, treating these cancers early. And that's and that's really what the the main finding of the NLST was: is that uh, we can basically catch cancers that would in a much later time when patients are either symptomatic um, or develop, uh, have imaging for other reasons. And if we can catch it early with a screening scan, um, then we can reduce their mortality from it.
0: Great. Thanks for setting the stage, Jonathan. So I'm going to turn our attention to Shaw now. Um, we'll discuss your paper that you published in um, the Chester 2020 issue. What is the motivation and rationale for your study?
1: Sure. Um, Well, our premise was simple. We simply just wanted to know, can the benefit of lung cancer screening that was shown in the NLST really be replicated in the real-world setting? Um, We know that the generalizability of the NLST results to the community was uncertain for a host of reasons. Um, One of the main ones is because in an RCT, it's very easy to set strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, and those criteria are adhered to very closely in those types of settings. However, um, we also know in that setting that those centers were largely specialty care centers um, that had excellence in screening and follow-up imaging, and certainly in the procedures that are involved with the follow-up testing of any positive findings. And we don't know if those same specialty care centers or those, um, those centers of excellence are also going to be doing all of the screening versus other centers and if they have the same outcomes. And finally, we also know that the demographics of the NLST were very, very different. Um, That cohort is um, very different from the community setting in that there are a higher number of former smokers versus current smokers. We know that that cohort was highly educated and um, the predominant race was white in that particular cohort. And they also had less pulmonary disease than we see in our community settings. And so, at the surface, it seems very simple. We just want to reduce lung cancer mortality with a very non-invasive test that poses very little harm. But we know that the follow-up testing, particularly with invasive diagnostic procedures, um, these procedures have a potential to cause harmful outcomes. And those harmful outcomes can very quickly diminish any benefits um, from a non-invasive procedure. And so when Jonathan was talking about the benefits, the 20% risk reduction of dying from lung cancer that was shown in LST, we have to remember that that was a relative risk reduction. So when we talk about absolute risk reduction in lung cancer mortality, that was shown to just be 0.3%. So you can imagine any, um, any increase in the harms may tip the balance from more risk to benefit uh, if we're not careful about watching our follow-up exams and invasive testing. So, we actually just set out to determine a couple of things. First was, what is the rate of follow-up testing for both non-invasive testing, such as imaging with CT, um, PET scans, or MRI? And then we also set out to determine what's the rate of follow-up due to invasive testing. Um, And if that rate is high, we hypothesize that there may be more potential for harm.
0: Great. So what were your study methods and what uh, 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 was it a perspective, retrospective? Did you use the database?
1: Sure. Um, This was a retrospective analysis. Um, We used one of the nation's largest commercial health insurance databases called the Clinformatics Datamart database to conduct our study. Um, This includes over 18 million enrollees, so a large number um, potential population here. We sorted these beneficiaries based on age um, using the NLST and USPSTF criteria. So we extended our age group from 55 to 80 years of age, and we essentially created two cohorts. So the first cohort actually was the um, beneficiaries that underwent low-dose CT screening for lung cancer um, in 2016, and we searched these, uh, this cohort by CPT codes for lung cancer screening. And in the 12 months following the lung cancer exam, we looked for any diagnostic um, thoracic CT imaging, PET imaging, or MRI brain imaging. And we also looked for procedures which included bronchoscopy, percutaneous biopsy, mediastinoscopy, thoracoscopy, and thoracotomy. The second cohort we created did not have low-dose CT testing in 2016. So this cohort was created sort of as our control population, which was age, sex, and comorbidity matched to our screening cohort. And we essentially used this cohort to find out what's the background or what's the baseline level of imaging um, of similar imaging and procedures that arose um, in this population. And then when we subtract the follow-up testing of the control population from our screening population, um, those procedures or exams, we could then come up with an adjusted rate of follow-up testing. Um, And so we did this in order to account for the possibility that some of the testing that occurred um, in our low-dose CT population after screening may not have been related necessarily to the findings on the lung cancer screening exam.
0: Great, so I think we have a pretty good idea as to what the study was about and how you conducted it. So let's dive first into the key findings, and then after that, the limitations of the study. I'll start with uh, Sean. Maybe you could tell us what your key findings were.
1: Sure. Um, So first off, I wanted to just point out that um, the rate of low-dose CT imaging was very low in this population. There were about 11,000 low-dose CTs that occurred in all of these beneficiaries. Overall, about one in five persons had a follow-up exam within 12 months of their lung cancer screening exam, and that included imaging or procedures. Um, as far as imaging goes, most of the follow-up consisted of imaging, um, which was more than 98% CT repeat CT exams, um, with less than 1% having a follow-up PET or MRI. When we examined the timing of this repeat imaging, most of these repeat CTs occurred, usually at three and six months, and so we kind of... Hypothesize that this is perhaps consistent with nodule follow-up exams that correlate with the suggested screening intervals with the Fleischner Society guidelines. Now, for procedures, follow-up testing with invasive procedures was low. The cumulative rate at 12 months after the lung cancer screening exam was only three, was around three percent, and the majority of these procedures were bronchoscopy, um, and then less than one percent with percutaneous biopsy, mediastinoscopy, thoracotomy, or thoracoscopy. When we looked at the control population, again, the population that was just looking for the background rates of imaging and procedures um, in those that did not have a lung cancer screening exam, we found about 7% had imaging, and low rates of procedures were observed with less than 1% um, noted. The adjusted rate of imaging and procedures, um, again, which was calculated by subtracting the rate of imaging or procedures in the control arm from the rate after um, the low-dose CT group was 13% roughly for imaging and about 3% for procedures. So, those were our main findings.
0: Yeah, great, uh, Sean. Uh, So, Jonathan, what stood out for you about these findings, and what were the identified limitations when you initially uh, read this paper?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I really like this study because um, I always actually have a appreciation for sort of real-world studies that sort of give us, I think, really helpful information about what current practice is um, and how that might differ from the ideal study population. Um, And so, as Dr. Nishi mentioned, you know, I think there is an apparent um, lower follow-up imaging rate um, than what we saw in the NLST, but maybe a higher um, invasive procedure rate. Um, The the challenge is, I think, interpreting what these differences in rate mean, um, based on the numbers alone. Um, and part of that, um, and from, from the imaging standpoint, is there really has been a big change in how we approach lung cancer screening um, in terms of evaluating potential nodules that need follow-up since the initial NLST. And that was with the introduction of the Lung-RAD system, which I think Dr. Nishi um, and her colleagues mentioned in their paper as one of their limitations as well. Um, the lung red system, for people who are less aware, is sort of a... Um, Way to categorize uh, lung nodule risk based on appearance um, in a very sort of algorithmic manner um, and, and using this methodology has greatly reduced the false positive rate that we've seen um, in lung cancer screening and so. As we've seen this implemented in practice, um, the need for follow-up is likely reduced um, from what we saw in the initial NLST. And so that in itself could potentially explain why we're seeing uh, lower imaging follow-up in the lung RAD system. I'm sorry, sorry, uh, what lower follow-up rates in in the Nishi study compared to uh, the NLST. Uh, What was actually more, I think, uh, concerning for me was the rate of invasive procedures. Um, because that, as Dr. Nishi mentioned, is really where we have to start worrying about whether we're tipping the balance of, of harms and benefits of screening. Um, if we're doing more invasive procedures than we initially saw in the, the initial trial, are those appropriate procedures? And if not, are we potentially uh, inducing harm on what's relatively a healthy population, um, the screening population, um, where otherwise we, we you know wouldn't be intervening? But again, I think both of these things really root from the fact that we don't know what's appropriate and not without knowing the ultimate results of the CT images. Um, and so were these nodules that are we just finding more nodules in the real world that require um, more invasive procedures? Um, or is it that physicians are following uh, the algorithmic nodule guidelines that we have laid out? Um, and I think it's really hard to know um, to explain why we're seeing these Uh, differences in numbers from the ideal study conditions. And so, for me, that was probably the the major limitation is that, you know, we really don't know the appropriateness of these numbers. Um, Perhaps it's just that when we get to the real world population, we're using the lung red system. Maybe we're seeing less nodules that require follow-up imaging. Maybe we're seeing more nodules that require invasive procedures. Now, we do have some Data from outside the screening world that could probably guide us, and that's probably in the pulmonary nodule follow-up data, um, where we know that pulmonary nodule guidelines in general um, unrelated to screening um, are not well followed um, with you know, a, a, adherence rates typically hovering around the 50 percent range. Um, but with that, we know that invasive procedures are typically higher than recommended. Uh, for pulmonary nodules. So if we sort of use that prior data outside of the lung cancer screening world, we likely can infer that, that those principles likely also apply to the lung cancer screening world. Although again, it's, it's impossible to know for certain without knowing the results of the scan. Okay,
0: Jonathan, I'll ask you to pause then I'll turn the attention back to Sean. So, Sean, Jonathan brings up two important issues. One, that um, with the use of the retrospective database, that you weren't able to get data on which patients had positive screens, and then also the importance of the fact that they appeared to be more invasive procedures. Maybe you could comment on that and uh, address uh, those two concerns?
1: Sure. Um, so, inherent to any large administrative database, uh, there is certain limitations that we have, and that is certainly one of them that Jonathan brings up, and and an important one. Um, We did try to account for some of this by using that control population, but certainly we can't account for everything. Um, Our adjusted ratios are merely what we see in the real world, but we don't have any background or context to know, as he mentioned. So we don't know the results of those low-dose CTs performed, and that means that we cannot be sure that the follow-up imaging or procedures are specifically related to evaluate for lung cancer or perhaps related to either incidental findings as well, or perhaps even unrelated at all. Um, Similarly, it's hard for us to report rates of follow-up if we don't know any complications, and so we can't tie um, a result um, of a procedure necessarily even after the fact of a follow-up invasive procedure if there's a complication that may be related directly to that. Um, We can merely just report, you know, things that are easily searchable in the database and also, I think an important thing to remember as well is that it's also hard for us to tell if um, follow-up testing may have been recommended um, to patients by by their physicians, um, but perhaps patients didn't follow up or didn't complete their testing for a variety of reasons. And so, I think that's probably one of our main limitations that we that we noticed as well. Um, so, it's hard to know if our if our results essentially either overestimate or underestimate what the testing is, but we kind of just use this as a baseline of, of where we're at now in the real-world setting and then can certainly spark some questions for the future.
0: Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, definitely highlighted the, from this paper for me was the fact that you went and identified a real-world population. But at the same time, it appears that using large databases, although there's been this big promise of using big data to get a more granular appearance as to what's happening, it appears that there are significant limitations that may affect our interpretation of certain results. Would you agree? Absolutely. And uh, Jonathan, how did you uh, interpret that in in terms of the promise of big data versus um, uh, the results of the large randomized trial that was done about 10 years ago?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm admittedly biased. Um, I tend to do the small data um, and uh, oh, some qualitative work, which is really small data. Um, but you know, I think big data uh, for this type of work can be great um, because it can help us identify some patterns, and it can help identify um, what questions we might need to ask um, in smaller-scale studies um, where we're trying to identify why those patterns exist. And so, as uh, Dr. Nishi mentioned, I think this gives us a base. It gives us a starting point to say, well, this might be where we're at now, um, but how do we explain it? How do we say, well, why is the follow-up imaging rate a little bit lower? Um, And that's where I think using um, different types of study methodology can help further with identifying explanations for those patterns. Um, So this can really help generate, I think, hypotheses, and we can uh, learn, you know, what the uh, baseline rate might be close to. Um, But then I think delving deeper into why um, that exists is really the next step into then correcting it and saying, okay, well, now we've identified why rates might be, maybe they're lower than they should be um, and why that is, and we can identify interventions to help correct that. And so I think, you know, there is certainly value um, in using big data for this type of work um, because it's really sometimes the only way to identify these patterns um, and to um, see where we're starting from. But I think there's also value in what I like to call sort of smaller data, small data, um, which is, you know, qualitative work um, or even sort of, you know, single center or even, you know, two, three-center studies um, where maybe the specific limitations for your center is different um, than other centers across the country. Um, and, and But I think this helps uh, a starting point to say, well, what, do, what factors should, should we start looking at in our own uh, lung cancer screening practice that may or may not affect these rates?
0: So, Sean, maybe you could answer that question for us. I mean, you've obviously in a rather great position where you've done the large database analysis and you've identified which factors were maybe missing from your database. What should future studies uh, include or what data points should they have so that we can actually get down to answer this question as to whether or not um, lung cancer screening is being done appropriately in the real-world setting?
1: Sure. I think um, there's a lot of things that we could potentially do. Um, Unfortunately, I, I think a lot of the databases are already set up to, you know, we have to operate within the confines of those. So, as Jonathan pointed out, the smaller studies sometimes are, are better at trying to find out, you know, the more granular data or the details of the reasonings why, um, whereas our larger data sets are exactly what he says. We're just merely showing um, from a very, you know, high level what's being done without the reasons behind it. Um, I think, so one of the things that I know with lung cancer screening, when Medicare had come out with the, you know, the public call for comments and things of that nature, they were worried about that risk-benefit ratio, and so one of the things that was set up was to have a large database through the ACR, I believe, Um, and so there's something like 88 fields within that database of patients that get screened for lung cancer, at least through the Medicare system, um, that we were supposed to follow up on as institutions that screen that show not only the baseline demographics of patients which are undergoing screening, but also those patients' um, results after the screening exam. So, how many of those patients had to go on and get further imaging or invasive testing? Exactly the things that we're we're discussing here. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not sure how well that um, database is being populated by the the participating centers. Uh, I haven't seen any data from the ACR, the American College of Radiology, um, published any of this data, so it makes me um, wonder what's out there um, to give us more more definite idea of what's going on. But I think something along those lines that shows exactly what the follow-up is in, our, in each of these patients at an individual level is over the next you know years after they continue their lung cancer screening exam, unless we get to that level of detail um, with these larger databases, we're not going to be able to know what's really going on.
0: Your comment, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think I I agree with um, a lot of what Dr. Nishi said. I think another um, really important point that she alluded to very early on um, when she was talking about um, her study is that, you know, the numbers that we're having in terms of enrolling patients in screening are are quite low. And so any data that we're able to collect on who has been screened is going to be a limited um, data because we have a very, very small proportion of patients eligible for screening being screened. Um, And so inherently that data has potential to be biased in the sense that there's a very large number of patients who are unscreened. And why they're unscreened um, versus screened is something that we really don't know. Um, And I think that ultimately, you know, we can talk a lot about... what's happening to the patients being screened, but, you know, when we're talking low rates of of screening, um, it depends on the source you're using, but most, um, I've actually never seen anything over single digits in terms of percent screened eligible, with most estimates being between four to six percent of patients eligible for screening having been screened. Um, If you compare that to things like colorectal cancer screening, breast cancer screening, um, cervical cancer screening, most of those fall in the 60 to 80% screened range. Um, and so we're really, really still in the infancy of lung cancer screening. And so I think a, another important point to add to Dr. Nishi's um, further uh, research um, answer is, you know, well, why do we have such a small number of people being screened um, and what factors are at play there and how that might influence some of the benefit-to-harm ratio that we're seeing um, in the real world.
0: So maybe we could just go ahead
2: and postulate as to reasons that that
0: would be the case. I mean, based on your experience, uh, Sean, and your experience, Jonathan, what would those reasons be? I'll start with you, Sean.
1: Sure. So I actually just do a little bit of outcomes research, but most of my job is um, clinical pulmonary medicine. And so I'll tell you from at least our institution standpoint, there's there's quite a few reasons. The largest ones that we've noticed um, through surveys internally um, and doing some of our own outcomes research at our institution is that there's a, there's, quite a bit of um, an education gap amongst providers about um, whether they believe in lung cancer screening. So there's the NLST results, and then there's whether you buy into that um, <laughs> that that result of the trial. And I think that the other main issue that we see at our campus, anyway, is that um not only is it education about the results themselves and what they speak for, but also, you know, you may believe in lung cancer screening and you may want to actually have your patients that are appropriate undergo lung cancer screening. But then there's a whole other side of how do you how do you perform shared decision-making well. And we know that this is a mandate by CMS. Um, there are many other professional societies that also recommend the shared decision making visits. And it comes down to education of some of the nitty gritty details of the, of the trial. Um, and, and providers quite frankly just don't feel comfortable or they may not have the time to talk to their patients about, um, about the details of these exams. And then I think there's a whole other side of the education standpoint um, for us as providers is that we also need to really determine those patients that are appropriate for screening and those that are not. Um, There's new data coming out on, you know, stage uh, three and four COPD probably doesn't have a, a benefit from lung cancer screening, but I don't think that necessarily the entire screening population is aware of these types of things. Um, And then I guess the last thing would also be a a patient education standpoint. Um, Patients, as much as we want to talk about shared decision-making, a lot of times at the end of our visits we notice that patients simply ask us the question is, what do you want me to do, doc? Um, and I think that it is a very complicated issue. There are social factors, there's the stigma of of smoking in the past, of having these, these risk factors, and it's not like other screening exams where you just meet an age factor and you're a male or a female and you automatically get screened as a recommendation. This is much more complicated and much more in-depth a discussion that has to occur. Um, And anytime you have a complicated issue that requires a lot of multiple decisions coming one after the other, there is a tendency for patients to, or what we have seen is that there's a tendency for patients to just defer to the provider. And again, that comes back again to does the provider believe in it and is um, is it an exam that they feel comfortable ordering for their patients?
0: Well, oh, those are pretty insightful comments. Thank you, Sean. Um, Jonathan, uh, what has your clinical experience been?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I echo a lot of what has already been said, and so I'll just um, add to it instead of uh, rehashing um, the, those same points, which were excellent. Um, You know, I think some of the other issues we have to think about in terms of why there's been low penetrance into this practice um, has has more at the system level as well as sort of the uh, individual practice level. Um, From the individual practice level, one thing I've seen is that sometimes there's a challenge in terms of ownership. Um, who owns the lung cancer screen Um, because I I believe a lot of people feel that this should be like other cancer screening, um, something that is talked about, discussed with patients and ordered in the primary care setting. Um, However, as Dr. Nishi mentioned, there are a lot of nuances um, and challenges in figuring out which patients are best for screening. Um, And while as pulmonologists and as researchers in this field, we often think of lung cancer screening being this great intervention that everyone should be doing, I think we have to remember for people outside this field, um, it often is what I like to call just another box to check. Um, It's not the main priority in a primary care visit with a patient. Um, There's a lot of other issues um, to discuss, Um, often others that are more urgent or more of concern to the patient, um, and so that's, a, I think, a major limitation that I've seen um, in some of the discussions I've had with our primary care providers is that by the time they get to discussing lung cancer screening, um, the visit's over, um, and so then they push it off to the next time and the next time after that. Um, addition, In addition to that, I think there is a big systems issue um, where cancer screening for lung, for lung cancer requires a lot of multidisciplinary specialties. Um, and it's not something that can necessarily be do, done in all centers um, in the way that it's intended, meaning to assure appropriate follow-up. Um, it requires having radiologists, it requires, uh, thoracic oncologists. It requires um, often having endobronchial ultrasound or capabilities for thoracoscopy, um, all these procedures that would potentially be needed for follow-up exams. And so then we get into the issues about whether there's a centralized center that does all the lung cancer screening or whether there's a centralized referral center that can follow up on potentially abnormal screens um, from outside community centers. And this is a really challenging thing to um, uh, This is a really challenging thing to make work in the real world. Um, And I think that's one of the major limitations we've seen in in community providers, and when I say community providers, not in these big academic hospitals, um, often they're not screening because they don't know what to do with an abnormal screen. Um, And so it's sort of this uncertainty of of how to respond, how to react um, to the results of the exam. um, That's another limitation.
0: I think both of you have uh, emphasized the, uh, both the complexity of uh, dealing with the patient's conditions as well as coordinating amongst the uh, many different uh, systems and um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, physicians. Um, Sean, I want to bring your attention back to um, the, uh, the fact that this was a real-world uh, study versus, uh, as you had mentioned before, the lung cancer screening trial was done in the uh, specialty centers. Um, Do we need to do a lung cancer screening trial amongst the real world setting then um, to see if there's actually a difference um, uh, between those two uh, communities? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um I think that would be uh, an extraordinary undertaking <laughs> which I'm not sure if we could um, ideally yes I would say that but I think the problem with doing any study per se is that you have that whole Hawthorne effect so to speak so you know you know you're being watched and you're automatically going to you know kind of up your game a little bit and so the results are really only as as, as artificial I guess <laughs> that they're not going to always replicate what you have in a real world setting and ultimately I think that the concern is that you can't replicate the real world for everybody. Everybody's real world is a little bit different as Jonathan had mentioned. So I'm not sure that doing, um, another trial in the real world setting is necessarily going to, um, shed a lot more light as much as, you know, we have to treat this almost like a quality um, assessment project, and every center or every area um, needs to look at their own data, and then we need to keep a larger view, um, a bird's-eye view of the data, too, um, using some of these administrative databases, perhaps, that shows us, you know, what is the trend overall, but ultimately, it's our responsibilities for those of us that are screening to constantly look at that data and reassess and find out if, if we're doing right by our patients
0: so the importance of other study methods. One thing that struck me about both the lung cancer screening trial and both your uh, database analysis was the time that it took from uh, um, when patients were seen until your studies were published. In the RCT, patients were enrolled in 2002, and the study was published in 2011. Uh, For the database that uh, you analyzed, patients were enrolled, I think, 2014 to 2017, and the data is obviously published now in 2020. So the question I have is, is there a way of shortening that time interval from the time the patients are enrolled until we can get the results, that we can actually act on them in real time? And the second question um, I have is uh, the difference in generations. We've been told that we've got the baby boomers versus the traditionalists versus Generation X. And may it be that the difference that we're seeing in terms of procedures and testing and interventions has to do with uh, the different cohorts that we're seeing. Maybe the traditionalists were, more, were less likely to have interventions, whereas the baby boomers are more likely to have interventions. Um, I'll let Jonathan answer that question, and then I'll turn it over to Sean after.
2: Yeah, I think um, you actually bring up a great point that um, we struggle sometimes on the research side in terms of, um, you know, when the data is available to when we can analyze it and publish it. Um, I think one of the major limitations in in doing research in the lung cancer screening world is that we often want to see the ultimate outcome, which is development of lung cancer or even mortality. Um, Obviously, this study is looking, the Nishi study is looking at follow-up rates, which you can do a little bit sooner. But, for instance, with the NLST, you need to wait long enough to see kind of what happens to people. Um, And, unfortunately, with with lung cancer, um, fortunately from a clinical side, unfortunately from a research side, often that takes a while, um, and you need to give it enough time to see sort of differences in outcomes. The other issue related to that has to do with your power calculation, how many events you need to... Be able to analyze the data, um, and if you even if you look at the the National Lung Screening Trial um, of the fifty thousand patients they had, the actual number who developed lung cancer screening in that entire cohort is relatively small, um, on the order of you know a couple percent, um, and so you really either need very large numbers or very large periods of time to really get enough events to be able to do an appropriate analysis. So that's often the limitation. Um, that it takes so long to see data, and so we're talking about, you know, I know we were sort of joking about doing a um, real-world RCT on this. Um, The challenge there is, once again, you would have to wait at least probably eight to ten years to again analyze that data, because you need to give um, the participants long enough to see what happens to them, but also a long enough time to get enough events um, to to be able to calculate um, an appropriate comparison. Um, your second question, I, th- I think, is um, you know gets back to why um, are we maybe seeing more invasive procedures, and I think it touches a little bit on um, a factor Dr. Nishi mentioned in, in shared decision making. Um, so, shared decision making—the whole principle for those who are less familiar with it—is that um, the physician provides expertise um, in the sense that they have clinical expertise; they can tell you the pros and the cons of interventions. Um, But the patient has their own expertise and what they want and their own uh, values and preferences. And shared decision-making is this idea that a physician and a patient can share each other's expertise and make a decision together what's best for that patient as well as what's best medically. Um, And in lung cancer screening, it comes up at the very early stages about whether to do lung cancer screening, as Dr. Nishi mentioned. Um, But getting it to your point about the invasive procedures and, and why rates might be higher Shared decision-making also occurs when you have an abnormal result because there is equipoise often when you have a nodule of a certain size about whether to do a repeat CT scan or whether to do a procedure. Um, There there are reasonable recommendations to do either in many cases, and ultimately the the decision about which to do, um, it really depends on what the patient wants, what the physician's comfort is, um, and, and that dynamic. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that play into that, whether it's generational um, or if there's other factors at play in terms of whether the the patient is patient experience, perhaps the patient has a family member who had lung cancer and they had experiences with procedures. Um, All of those different factors can influence whether a patient says, you know what, I'd rather just get the biopsy. I'd rather just have the surgery um, and know as opposed to getting a CT in three months and waiting and, and worrying about it. Where on the flip side, some people want to withhold from getting procedures as long as possible. I don't know that it's quite as simple as just saying, you know, I think certain generations are more um, procedurally based than others. I think there's just a lot of different um, factors that come into that decision making. I agree. Sean? Sean?
1: Sure. Actually, Jonathan did a fabulous job of iterating every single one of my points (laughs) as far (laughs) as the shared decision-making. I don't have a lot to add in that respect, but I do want to reiterate the fact that exactly what he said is that that shared decision-making continues throughout lung cancer screening and certainly even more so when there is a positive finding or even an incidental finding that may need to be evaluated is that you have to have those conversations with patients and often their families are involved in those conversations. Conversations as well, because there are many factors, um, more than you can imagine, that that go through a patient's mind when they hear that there's an abnormality. So it's an emotional um, situation as well as a knowledge that they need to know things and be educated about what the possibilities for evaluation are. Which, as Jonathan mentioned, a lot of times can consist equally of either imaging, repeat follow-up. It could be nothing at all if they really don't want to know, um, or if it's not going to make a difference in their ultimate outcome, or it could be an invasive procedure, but that shared decision-making visit certainly has to extend in that um, post-screening period as well um going back to the other question about you know what is the what's the issue with the time lag between when we have data and when we're reporting data so there's a lot of things that go into it um, certainly all the points that Jonathan brought up about the specifics of the trials and the power calculations but there's also from an, a big administrative database standpoint there's just a certain amount of time that it takes for that data to become available to the public for research use um, it takes money to buy this data obviously, um, and that takes time, obviously, to get grants done. And then there's the other factors of things that we we don't think about often as clinicians other than from a a billing and coding standpoint, but if you're going to be using administrative data, you have to wait for the um, mechanisms to be in place for you to search the outcomes that you want. For instance, lung cancer screening, um, that low-dose CT code, the CPT code wasn't created until um, 2016 and then was retroactively being able to use in 2015 data. And so really the reason that we had to use um, this particular year, 2016, what was so special about it? The only thing special about it was it was the first full year that lung cancer screening had a, a code that we could search that database. And then it typically takes about a year and a half for that administrative database for, uh, for it to become available for us to search and use. Um, and so that's really the the difficulty when you're using some of these databases is just having those factors come into place um, where you can you can get that data out.
0: I think I really appreciate you highlighting uh, the challenges of using a large database. Um, We're getting towards the end of the podcast. And before we uh, end up, I just want to offer you both the opportunity um, to mention anything that uh, in your preparation for this podcast that we haven't discussed as yet, and any closing remarks. Um, I'll hand it over to uh, Sean first, and then I'll let uh, Jonathan conclude.
1: So I think Dr. Yocorino's and Wiener's editorial was amazing. I really enjoyed reading it. I certainly agree with their title that there are certainly more questions than answers at this time. Um, But it is an exciting time, I think, for those of us that are practicing um, our lung cancer screening and looking at our data. So, uh, the thing that I want to iterate is that the lung cancer screening use is very low. And that because of that, it's very hard for us to know whether or not the follow-up imaging and procedures, you know, how much we can interpret out of that. So, we need to explore, I think, the reasons for this and then determine if these are appropriate responses before we can really determine if further conclusions can be made.
0: Thank you, Sean. Um, I'll turn it over to Jonathan
2: yeah and I want to reiterate that you know again, I really enjoyed the study. um I really enjoy seeing um you know what real world practice is looking like and how we're translating these these trials into practice. um the one thing I would sort of um just like to, to uh, conclude on you know a lot of the studies we've done and we've seen have looked at one year follow up rates uh, three year follow up rates um, but it's really important to remember that. What we're recommending for lung cancer screening is potentially 26 years of annual CT screening if you were to screen someone for the entire 55 to 80-year-old recommended age range. Um, And I think that we have to start thinking about the rates of these procedures, follow-up imaging, complication rates, um, and the potential harms we're doing over that period of time. Um, Because I think if you extrapolate... Um, a 4% risk of an invasive procedure in three years or a 3% risk in one year? Um, Well, what's that risk over 26 years? Um, And similarly, the benefits will also change over that time period as we're screening every year. Um, But I think a lot of the future work that we're doing has to take into account that, um, you know, 20 years down the road, we're going to have patients who have been screened 15, 20 years. Um, And then what are the outcomes going to look like for those patients? Um, And so I think a lot of the, the the harms to benefit ratios that we're looking at um, need to be thought about in that kind of context. Conversely, we need to start thinking about, well, do patients need to be screened every year? And a lot of work is being done in this area where perhaps a negative screen predicts a patient needs to be screened less. Um, is it every other year? Is it every three years? Is it every five years? Um, how can we adapt um, the screening intervals that we reduce patients' exposure to harm um, Consequently, there's obviously a, a challenge in making lung cancer screening more complex. And so to reiterate Dr. Nishi's point, um, we're not doing it enough regardless. Um, but as we move forward, I think we have to approach it with some degree of caution and how we're potentially introducing harms over a potentially 26-year screening period.
0: Great. Uh, great way to end the podcast. And I want to thank both of you for uh, the really uh, interesting manuscripts that you've produced, and it was great reading them, and even better to chat to you in person. So a very big thank you to Drs. Nishi and Icarina for great conversation, and a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the CHESS Podcast.